0: We are in week three of our 12-week sermon series, now entitled Tough Texts. We are tackling the most difficult passages in the Bible. Um, In week one, we considered together uh, the allegedly irrelevant text passages that uh, cause us to ask sometimes, what's the point? Why did God include this in the Bible? Last Sunday, we discussed allegedly inconsistent texts. Doesn't this passage contradict science or history or other biblical material? This morning we're shifting our focus to our third type of tough text, which is the personally problematic. Some texts are difficult because if they're true, if they are really God's Word, then they ought to radically affect the way we live our lives in sometimes uncomfortable ways. In this morning's passage, Psalm 139 fits squarely in that category. If Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, are really the Word of God and are true, as I hope to show you this morning, not only biblically, but medically, as well as deductively from logic and reason alone, if it's true that life begins at conception, then you and I are left to face the very uncomfortable reality that most of us, I suspect, have been complicit. I'll just speak for myself. I've been mostly, passively unconcerned by the most widespread Holocaust in the history of the human race, right under our noses. Holocaust is defined as any mass slaughter or reckless destruction of life. Obviously, that word is typically associated with Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany's slaughter of 6 million Jews in the mid-20th century, by comparison, if life truly begins at conception, then 42 million babies are slaughtered each year around the world by abortion. Abortion makes Hitler look like an amateur. I want to warn you of two things before we get going this morning. Parents, We are going to be discussing and viewing some very disturbing things this morning. It's not too late to check your kids into child care, children's ministry. Um, If you've been around West Hills for any length of time, you know that I don't like to sugarcoat things. Abortion is gruesome. It's horrific. It's diabolical. It's heinous. And so any honest treatment of the subject from the pulpit or otherwise has to deal with it as such. In fact, I think much of the reason uh, that we aren't risking our lives to save the innocent lives of children is simply because we can't see them or we refuse to see them. Because it's gruesome. If we could see 42 million toddlers systematically slaughtered every year all around us for being inconvenient, The church might have more to say about it, because we can see a toddler, and yet for Bible-believing Christians, there is no difference between a three-year-old and a gestational three-month-old, and so I'm going to show you these babies this morning. Secondly, if you have personally had, encouraged, performed, or like me, stood silently by abortion, I want to recognize that for some of us, this is extra personal and sensitive this morning. And I simply want to remind you of the rest of the passage Scott already read for us this morning from 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. This issue above all others ought to remind us of just how forgiving our God is. Psalm 103:8 says the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So, that's the good news this morning, friends. There is no sin that you can commit that God is unable to forgive. But you have to confess. You have to repent. And so for us as a church not to talk about it because it's too personal, too sensitive, too uncomfortable, or it feels too political, listen, this is not a political issue. This is a life issue. This is a fighting for the soul of humanity issue. And if it's personal for you, us not talking about it as a church robs you of the opportunity to confess and be forgiven and receive the healing that you desperately need from your Father. And so let me start by summarizing some of the statistics for us. I think we need to get a sense for the scope of the issue. We celebrate that in Missouri, the number of abortions are plummeting, but around the rest of the country, over 600,000 abortions are still performed every year. And worldwide, as I've already said, that number is more than 42 million. That is 115,000 abortions every single day, Over 600 babies have been killed since I came up to the podium. One every .8 seconds. Somewhere between one-third and one-fourth of American women have had or will have an abortion at some time in their life, and so I recognize statistically, uh, even in a smaller crowd in the first service, we probably have uh, those women here with us. As we consider how things break down from state to state, You should know that there are seven states in which you can get an abortion at any point in your nine months of pregnancy. There are 17 states that allow state funding to be used for abortion. Uh, Most states allow a woman to purchase additional abortion insurance coverage. Uh, Meanwhile, there's no such thing as infertility or adoption insurance that doesn't exist. So we help moms kill unwanted babies, but not have them. There are eight states in which hospitals and doctors are legally required to perform abortions or risk losing their license. In 32 states, a woman is not required to receive any counseling before receiving an abortion. In 23 of those states, she does not have to wait. She can walk in, virtually no questions asked, and have an abortion within minutes. In 24 states, a minor, a girl under the age of 18, can have an abortion without parental consent. And in 13 of those states, she doesn't even have to notify her parents. Lastly, uh, 29 states have no state laws prohibiting partial birth abortion. Partial birth abortion, uh, and this is where this will get graphic, so I'll warn you, is a procedure. Um, In 29 states, if you need to avert your eyes, Uh, Mother is given drugs to induce labor during her second or third trimester. And during the labor process, the baby is injected with digoxin or potassium chloride to begin to kill it. And then as the baby is being delivered, its skull is crushed with forceps, and then the remnants of the brain are sucked out to ensure death. By federal law, the baby must be killed before its head is fully out, If it is breech or if it's headfirst, then before having been extracted from the mother's body to a point past the baby's navel. If you can see a belly button, it's murder. If you can't, then it's just birth control. This sermon, uh, the pictures are over now. This sermon was in some ways the most difficult I've ever had to prepare, research, write, and now deliver. Uh, for obvious reasons, but in other ways it's actually been the simplest, because the abortion issue is actually very simple. See, the world would have us believe that it's complicated. Satan, the god of this world, would love to confuse you into thinking this is a complex issue, but it's not. It's not. Satan has Blinded the minds of unbelievers, and on this particular issue, he has even tragically blinded the minds of many who profess the name of Christ. But it's actually incredibly simple. It really just boils down to one question Is the unborn thing inside a mother's uterus a human person or not? That's the only question that matters. As Gregory Kukul points out, if the unborn is not a human person, then no justification for abortion is necessary. Indeed, this is why the pro-choice movement eventually dropped their safe, legal, and rare motto from the 90s. If the unborn is not a human person, then why should abortion be rare? As Katha Pollitt says, let's quit apologizing for abortion. Let's quit trying to make excuses for it. Instead, let's make the point that vacuuming out your uterus is no different morally than vacuuming out your house. However, if the unborn is a human person, then no justification for abortion is adequate. As Pastor David Platt writes, if what is in the womb is a person, then even if someone is pro-abortion or pro-choice for any number of different reasons, all of their reasoning falls apart Everything, everything revolves around what is happening in a mother's womb. And scripture for believers is clear. That womb contains a person being formed in the image of God. And so let's read it together for ourselves. Would you stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's word from Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. For you form my inward parts. Let's pray. Father, sometimes there are no words, so Holy Spirit, we trust you to intercede with groans. We repent as a nation, as a church, as individuals for standing idly by Father, would you use this time to open our eyes, stir our hearts, and motivate us to become involved and engaged in one of the most important issues for the 21st century American church today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I don't have any exegesis or interpretation for you of Psalm 139, because none is necessary. It really is that plain and simple. You can reread it for yourselves. You form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. That's a metaphor for the mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. David Platt marvels, the psalmist didn't necessarily know how God takes an egg and a sperm and brings them together, how a few weeks later, often before a woman even realizes she's pregnant, a human heart is beating and circulating its own blood. That happens at 21 days. Uh, Over 95% of abortions stop a beating heart. Within a few more weeks, fingers are forming on hands, and brain waves are detectable. That's at eight weeks. Over half of abortions stop measurable brain activity. Before long, these inward parts are moving. Kidneys are forming and functioning, followed by a gallbladder. And then by the twelfth week, which is the ideal time we're told to have an abortion, All the organs of a baby boy or girl are functional, and he or she can cry. All of this occurs within three short months, the first trimester. A heart, a brain, organs, sexuality, movement, reaction, and the creator of the universe is orchestrating all of it. But it's not just Psalm 139. The Bible is abundantly clear in passage after passage that life begins at conception. Psalm 22, 9 and 10. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Jeremiah 1.5, "'Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, "'and before you were born, I consecrated you, "'I appointed you a prophet to the nations.'" Galatians 1.15, Paul says, "'He set me apart before I was born "'and called me by his grace.'" Isaiah forty nine one. Isaiah says, "'The Lord called me from the womb, "'from the body of my mother he named my name.'" Job 31.15, "'Did he not who made me in the womb make him, "'and did not one fashion us both in the womb?' Luke one forty one. when Elizabeth had heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. Not the fetus, not the cluster of cells. The baby is the same Greek word, brephos, used in chapter 2 for Jesus after he's born. Biblically, there's no distinction. Exodus 21, verses 22 through 24, when two men stride together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him. He shall pay the judges uh, what the judges determine, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. In other words, if upon delivery it is determined that the baby's eye was injured, you put out the man's eye who caused it. If the baby was killed, you put him to death. Biblically, an unborn baby has identical value to a 35-year-old man like me. So to summarize then, MacArthur says, Conception is the act of God whereby a person is created by God's sovereign will. A soul is breathed into a living tissue by the Holy Spirit. That soul's destiny is already known to God, determined by him from before the foundation of the world. Abortion then becomes a violent, anti-God act. It is not only a murder of the individual, it is an affront to the Creator. And I would add abortion is the greatest affront to the Creator, other than perhaps blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin, which we studied in Mark chapter 3. Other than rejecting Christ Himself, outside of that, there is no greater sin biblically than usurping God's sovereign role over life and death and taking innocent human life. Now, I claim that abortion is murder not only biblically, but also biologically and also rationally. It just makes logical sense, and here's why I say that. There's not a reasonable alternative case to be made for when human life begins, if not at conception. So consider with me the options. Is a fetus become a baby, a human person, when it becomes independent? or viable. When life can be sustained outside the womb, my question would be, for how long? Who determines for how long? My four-year-old daughter, by that definition, is arguably not a human. We're we're about to go on vacation when when, when I leave here today. If we left her at home for, for those nine days, she would not survive on her own. Some of the middle schoolers in our youth group are not humans by that definition. Add a little humor in there. Wouldn't it also hold true then as a corollary that the more independent of others' supports, the more independent you are, the more human you are, is that really a position anyone is comfortable with? You're on government assistance. You must not be as human as I am. What about birth? I've heard pro-choice Christians exegetically butcher Genesis chapter 2 to argue that it's the breath of God that makes us human that life begins at birth. I would simply ask them, if a mother's breathing for her baby makes it less of a human, then does an adult who gets in a serious car accident and has to be put on a ventilator become less than human? This happens every day in hospitals all around the world. We induce comas, use machines to temporarily breathe for people until they're strong enough to do it for themselves again, and every day people come off ventilators, but we don't say, hey, remember that time you stopped being human for a few days. And every other arbitrary point in fetal development at which you can try and point and argue that life begins ultimately falls apart. Remember Kukul's rationale from earlier that if the unborn is not a human person, then no justification for abortion is necessary. But if the unborn is a human person, then no justification for abortion is adequate. The really terrifying truth for me about this argument is that not everyone agrees with that simple syllogism. In fact, more and more abortion advocates are conceding the undeniable biological fact that a fertilized embryo is a distinct, living, whole human being. What they do question is its worth. This is Ann Ferri, former CEO of the largest abortion provider in the UK. She acknowledges we can accept that an embryo is a living thing. In the fact that it has a beating heart, that it has its own genetic system within it, it's clearly human in the sense that it's not a gerbil. And we can even recognize that it's human life. The point is not when does human life begin, but when does it really begin to matter? Likewise, Mary Elizabeth Williams, in an article entitled, So What If Abortion Ends Life?, writes, A fetus is a human life. When we on the pro-choice side get cagey around the life question, it makes us look illogically contradictory. I have friends who have referred to their abortions in terms of scraping out a bunch of cells, and then a few years later were exuberant over the pregnancies that they unhesitatingly described in terms of the baby and this kid. I know women who have been relieved at their abortions and then grieved over their miscarriages. Fetuses aren't selective like that, she recognizes. They don't qualify as human life only if they're intended to be born. Here is the complicated reality in which we live. All life is not equal. And I would put the life of the mother over the life of a fetus every single time, even if I still need to acknowledge my conviction that the fetus is indeed a life, a life worth sacrificing. So perhaps... The text we should have read instead is Genesis one twenty seven, that every human person is created equally in the image of God with infinite, intrinsic worth and value and dignity. And I don't make the comparison lightly, but you really could take excerpts of what Faridi and Williams just said, those articles, and put them side by side with what Hitler said about Jews, and you could scarcely tell the difference. But short of arguing that all life is not equal, the humanity of that baby inside the mother's womb, as attested biblically, medically, and logically, really does answer the only question that really matters in this entire debate. It is a simple one question, issue. Is the life human life or not? Every other question or issue quickly becomes a non-issue. This is not an issue about women's rights over their own bodies. No one on either side of the argument is trying to tell women what they can or can't do with their bodies unless you think a pregnant woman has four legs and four arms and two heads. What pro-lifers and what everyone is, everyone is interested in, in legislating is what a woman does to another person's body. We do this every day. We restrict one another's rights every day to do harm to others. Legally, you can't murder people, no matter how inconvenient they are to you. And so the debate really does just boil down to, is the baby in the womb a person? A person who may happen, just so happen, to be located inside another person's body temporarily. This is not an issue about the dangers of illegal abortions. Should we legalize rape? Because some people are going to do it anyway, so we might as well make it as easy and safe as possible. Pass out the roofies and the prophylactics. Making or keeping something legal that is immoral because people are going to do it anyways is a horrible, absurd reason to make it legal. Well, you're a man. You're not allowed to have an opinion. Then we should throw out Roe v. Wade because that was decided by nine men. In logical argumentation, this is called the ad hominem fallacy. If you can't find holes in a person's argument, you just change the conversation and attack the speaker himself. And men aren't the only ones who stand up against abortion, by the way. This is not an issue of overpopulation. This past year, fertility rates in the United States fell to a historic low, the total fertility rate standing at 1.7. That's the number of children uh, a woman will bear during her lifetime. The replacement rate needed just to sustain our current population is 2.1. And this is a worldwide trend. We are on pace for the first time ever to have fewer people soon on the earth, fewer people paying into your social security, my social security. Underpopulation is soon to be a problem. This is not an issue of whether or not mom is able to take care of that baby. Listen, this particular argument, excuse, has become personal for me lately. I'm willing to put up with that. Give me your screaming baby. The average wait time to adopt in this country is two and a half years. Polly and I have now submitted our profile 10 to 15 times in a stack with 10 to 15 other perfect smiling families Willing to pay an average of 50, between fifty and seventy thousand dollars to adopt for babies that typically come from crisis pregnancies, addicted to heroin, adoption is cost prohibitive in this country today. It is simple supply and demand economics. There aren't enough babies to go around because of abortion. I don't know if you notice, orphanages do not exist in this country anymore. There are just too many people who struggle with infertility and who would kill for babies if those babies weren't being killed. And even if I and millions of other Christians weren't standing up and saying, we'll take your babies, give them to us, it still wouldn't justify abortion. Clusendorf argues, how does my alleged unwillingness to care for a child after he is born justify an abortionist intentionally killing him before he is born? Does anyone ever go to the American Cancer Society and say, how come you only care about one disease, Cancer. What are you doing about heart attacks? It simply doesn't follow that because pro-lifers oppose the intentional killing of innocent human beings that we therefore must take responsible for everything else wrong with society. This is not about whether or not that baby will be born with a birth defect. That is less than 3% of abortions for context. But regardless, Exodus 4.11 says, who has made man's mouth, or who makes him dumb, or deaf, or seeing, or blind, Is it not I, the Lord, if God sovereignly ordains that a child be born with physical deformities for his own good purposes, that is God's divine prerogative as our creator. And once again, we must ask, is physical ability really the measure of a person's humanness? This is not an issue about the cause of the pregnancy. Cases of rape, incest, which account for less than 0.5% of abortions. Klusendorf again, argues if you believe that each and every human being has an equal right to life, then how one got conceived is irrelevant to their right to life and to their value. In other words, hardship doesn't justify homicide. If the unborn are human beings, killing them because of the sin of their father would be an egregious moral wrong, and we can't just kill innocent human beings because it makes us feel better. The only legitimate exception to this would be the imminent risk of losing the mother's life which, again, accounts for less than 1% of abortions. The fact is, 86% of abortions occur for one of these stated reasons by mothers who are surveyed. I'm not ready for a child. I can't afford a baby. I'm done having children. I don't want to be a single mother. I'm not mature enough to raise a child, or it would interfere with my education or career, despite the fact that 64% of abortions are provided to women with a college-level education or higher. And because the only thing that matters is whether or not the unborn is a human person, that means not only do the abortionists' excuses not matter, but neither do all of the good reasons that pro-lifers stand for life. They don't matter. There are tons of reasons to be against abortion, but they don't matter. It doesn't matter that a woman's risk of suicide, PTSD, depression, breast cancer, sterility, death from hemorrhaging, complications in later pregnancies, premature births, placenta previa, pelvic infection, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, all go dramatically up after an abortion. In many cases today, it is more dangerous for the mother to get an abortion than to give birth. But that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that the entire abortion industry, a multi-billion dollar per year industry, was founded by Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood, under the auspices of eugenics, with the goal of ultimately eliminating blacks, Jews, and other feeble-minded races from the planet. It doesn't matter that 80% of Planned Parenthood's clinics today are located in primarily minority-populated neighborhoods. It doesn't matter That the legal system surrounding abortion makes absolutely no logical sense. That it is illegal in this country to ship a pregnant lobster across state lines for fear of harming the offspring, but it's legal to kill babies, human babies. It doesn't matter that if someone else causes the death of an unborn baby, they can be charged with murder, but if the mom chooses it, it's legal. It's birth control doesn't matter that if a mom takes a razor blade to her baby 30 seconds after it's born she'll spend 11 years in jail but if she or someone else took that same razor blade and slit its throat while the baby was on the way out as long as you can't see the belly button yet in some states that's perfectly legal none of those arguments matter because the only issue that matters here is whether or not it's a person in psalm 139 science and reason alone all unequivocally attest to the fact that it is. As Horton said so poignantly, a person's a person no matter how small. If you couldn't tell, this issue is personal for me. Today is my wife Polly's birthday. She almost wasn't born 34 years ago because she was an unplanned pregnancy. And my in-laws conceived on their honeymoon, they had the jackpot, and they had influential people in their lives encouraging them to just go get it taken care of. You don't want to start your marriage this way. You deserve some time to just the two of you. So I just want to take this opportunity to look at you all and say thank you. Thank you for doing the right thing, not the easy thing, not the selfish thing, but the right thing. Let me close with this. What can we do about abortion? How can we respond? Proverbs 24, 11, and 12 says, Rescue those who are being slaughtered, taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? After, t- after church today, friends, you can no longer say, behold, we did not know it. Consider your consciences raised. Second Corinthians 5.10 says, We all must stand before the judgment seat of God one day and give an account for every deed done in the body and for every good deed left undone. It's time for the church to rise up and say, Enough. So I will join Pastor Platt in urging you if you are a Christian, I plead for you to step out of a muddled middle road that says, I may not choose abortion, but I don't think we should take others' rights to choose it away and to realize how inconceivable it is for us to stay silent while millions of children. Individuals made in the image of God are dismembered and destroyed all around us in the world. Such thinking is not enlightened tolerance. It is sinful indifference. Moral and political neutrality here is not an option for us. Otherwise, how are we any different than the priest or the Levite in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan that Thrive mentioned? May the cries of the innocent not fall on our deaf ears. Proverbs 31, 8, and 9 says, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. It is our job, Christians, to speak up for those who have no voice. So, I'll leave you with four ways that we respond. Number one, abortion ought to affect the way we vote. I have to be careful here. So I would just quote Bridget, Thrive's president, who says, guess what? If I had been able to vote in 1864, you better believe I would have been a one-issue voter. She wouldn't have been able to vote because she's a black woman. But she would have been a one-issue voter. Christians and non-Christians alike will answer one day for the way that we vote. Number two, abortion ought to affect the way we spend our money. Give this morning to thrive. I have not discussed this with the rest of our elders, but I think we ought to make this morning's offering a special offering. We finished in 2019 as a church above budget, uh, budgeted giving for the first time in four and a half years that I've been here. So we're, we're doing pretty good at West Hills. I would love to just use this morning's offering to save babies together. Number three, abortion ought to affect the way we act. It ought to affect the way we spend our free time. I don't know about you, I've never been thrown in jail for boycotting outside Planned Parenthood. It's life goals. It's time for the church to wake up. Again, I'm preaching to myself this morning. I have not been nearly as active as I should on this issue. Write your legislators. Foster unwanted kids. Adopt them. The church ought to continue to give pro-choice movement. No leg to stand on. Because we are so caring for the orphan, for the needy. And finally, number four, most importantly, it ought to affect the way we pray. Ultimately, we know that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, and abortion is demonic. That is not overstating the case. It's demonic. And Jesus said some demons only are cast out by prayer. And so, Lord, we pray this morning. We pray together as a church, as your people. We ask you to intercede, Lord, and do what we cannot do. And to continue to, to turn the tide that we've we've began, begun to see turning in our society. and We're grateful for, we celebrate, as we did this morning. The numbers of abortions in Missouri are, are approaching zero. But Father, we also know it's not enough. We're called to care for our neighbors. That means the states beside us. That means the countries beside us. Forty two million babies a year is nothing short of a heinous Holocaust. Father, for too long the church has been too quiet. And so, God, we repent collectively this morning. Father, we resolve to care more about the things that you care so much about. Humans. People. Father, give us a heart after your own heart for people. For life. You're God who creates and says it's good. Life is good. Father, if there's anyone here for whom this issue is especially important, personal and sensitive. I want to pray for their heart this morning. I pray that nothing that I have said has, has instilled a spirit of, of guilt or shame. God, your word tells us that godly grief leads to repentance. And so, Father, I pray for an extra measure of repentance and heart change this morning for anyone uh, who has Performed or received or endorsed or supported or even just stood silently by. Abortion. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that we cannot out your grace. What love could remember no wrongs we have done? that our sins are many, but your mercy is more. We thank you for the truth of your gospel this morning, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.